there's a distinction between people determining the canon and people recognizing the canon. And what we've what I've been saying is that people didn't determine the books of the Bible and what went in there and what didn't. They recognized what the owner, God, had deemed authoritative. Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today we've got a great question. Who put the Bible together? This is one that comes up all the time, and I am joined by veteran of the podcast, Don Barkley from Search Orange County. You're going to help us answer this question today. So, Don, thank you so much for being here. Well, you're welcome, Blaine. It's good to be back. Well, we're going to have you back as many times as you want to come back because you're a very popular uh, guest here on the podcast, Don. I don't know if you know this, but you've got uh, legions of fans out there. That's what I hear. It's still hard to believe. <laughs> so, okay, we've, we've got a great question for real here. Who put the Bible together? Uh, how do we begin just thinking about this question? Well, the reason I think this is such a relevant question is because I hear it, uh, which means many people are asking it all over the world, I I think. Um, I'll tell you, for for 17 years, one of the things that I did was go to a treatment center for um, addicts and alcoholics. They asked me to come and lead forums, and they turned into – these people wanted answers, and so they became Q&A forums. And so I'd stand at the whiteboard and say, okay, I'd give an introduction about what this is for. And, you know, this is a time in your life where you're rethinking things, your, your, your own psychologist, your own philosopher, your own theologian. Then you're asking questions because life hasn't been working. And so what questions do you have about the Bible? What bugs you or about Christianity or about God or about religion? And I just stand there with my pen and list and fill the board. So I was at the men's unit and the women's unit for all those years. And I would say at least twice a month, I was going to say once, but it was more often than that. Average would be twice or three times a month. I would hear the question, well, don't we know that the Bible was put together by a council, some church council for political reasons? Sometimes they'll, they'll just say, didn't a council put the Bible together? And I I know what they're thinking, and you probably do too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, the Council of Nicaea, right? Some of them actually say some council in in 410 or some council in 800, you know, they'll miss it by a mile. (laughs) Council of Nicaea was 325. And this is a trickle down, I think, from the Da Vinci Code, which is also uh, the product of some, some ideas that came out even with, say, Voltaire back in the French Revolution era. So in the Enlightenment era, this, this idea was put out that the New Testament books, and specifically, were put together by the Council of Nicaea. In the Da Vinci Code, Dan, Dan Brown has the teacher, Professor Teabing, say, the Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. And when, you know, I, I, had, I went back to my copy of the Da Vinci Code, which was fun to read, but, but just line after line, it, was, it proved itself to be excellent fiction. And, um, but the idea was that for political reasons and uh, patriarchal reasons and political for, – for other reasons, the, these, this group of, of clerics, leaders of the church – uh, decided what books go in the New Testament. So the reason we're doing this, I think, is that, and, and I've heard this from not only people who, outside the church and Christian background, but people inside. People who have gone to seminary have told me this, that, you know, don't we know that the New Testament was put together by the Council of Nicaea in 325? And I, it's all I can do but to not hit my forehead, you know, slap my forehead and go, I, I can't believe here it is again. So, so I think that's why it's needed. People have some, uh, some questions and some misinformation about it. So I'm glad we can be here to at least 
hopefully help clear some of these things up. Yeah, well, I think we're going to do that here uh, over the time that we've got on this podcast. So let's start with uh, – some definitions and thinking through words. So we got to yep. get a slightly technical, but these it's not not too bad. But when you talk about what books should be in the Bible, there's a, a couple words, canon and and canonicity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so when when those words come up, what are what are we talking about when we hear those? Yeah, canonicity is the official title of this topic. Um, you know, Google it sometime. Uh, you know, as, if you're listening and want to just try it, just Google canonicity and you'll you'll get Wikipedia, of course, and other all sorts of articles. Um, canonicity comes from the word canon. I'll explain a little bit more about that. But the canonicity is the question of why a book is qualified to make the A-list, as in authored by God. Um, why does it deserve the place of authority and can be called scripture? That question and the study of that issue is called the question of canonicity. And so canon, just that, yeah. that word, it means what? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it comes from a word that meant stock or reed, like, a, like a, 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 a literal plant reed that was maybe a length that served as kind of a ruler. Um, it was the standard. And so the generic term, the, the generic meaning of the term canon actually means standard or rule, kind of like a ruler. You know, what's the standard foot? And... Um, and so what's – canon has the, this, this weight, this, this, uh, this sort of substance behind it. Like if this is like canon law, the term canon law, this is official law. This is – this has authority. And so you connect the term canon with authority and I think you're doing, doing, doing right by it. Fantastic. So uh, with that as a backdrop, is it really – is it true that church councils listed – the books of the Bible, so maybe mm-hmm. they, you're going to argue they didn't uh, come up with it, right? Right. But yep. were there lists? There were floating lists. around, and you know what? It wasn't the Council of Nicaea. You know, we we have records of the Council of Nicaea. We have the church, the great church historian Eusebius was there as part of the council. Athanasius was there as part of the council. So we have a record of not only which bishops were there. This was a really the first ecumenical council, which means the first council of both West and East Christianity, Roman, Latin-speaking Christians, and Greek-speaking Christians on the East, Constantinople-based. And so this – and it was possible because Constantine, the emperor, professed Christianity and pronounced that Christianity is no longer illegal so they could get together. But the question had nothing to do with the books of the Bible. We have that on record. So as Dan Wallace put it one time, the question of which books of the New Testament go in the in in the Bible was not even an agenda item at the Council of Nicaea. It was more about the person of Jesus Christ. Was he created or was he not created? So, but some councils did, but they didn't happen till till later. But let's talk about when we're talking about the Bible, of course, we're we're going to be going back and forth from the Old Testament and then talking about the New Testament. In this podcast, partly because of time and partly because it's it's a vast subject, and we've got to kind of limit where we talk. We're going to focus a lot on the New Testament, if that's okay. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Okay. So, the, yes, councils did. For the Old Testament, the first official council, you know, that that is spoken of, usually it's called the Council of Jamnia in about CE 90. In uh, if you know where Tel Aviv is, that's about mm-hmm. where it is in Jaffa. And as Rene Posh says in, in his book, Inspiration Authority of Scripture, it says it it was a group of Jewish rabbis who had extended discussions about the position in the canon of several books in this third section of the, write, the writings, that is. So the, the, the Old Testament as we know it is also the Jewish Bible, right? It's the Jewish Bible. They call it the Tanakh. So the Jewish Bible is divided in three sections, the law, the, the prophets, and the law, the writings, and the prophets. Law, writings, and prophets. Yes, prophets and writings. So Tanakh, that's how you remember it because those words. Anyway, Tanakh means the law, the prophets, and the writings. So that third section includes like the Psalms and Job and Proverbs. And and so that so the, that council wasn't deciding what books were going to be a part of the Jewish canon of Scripture. They were more talking about how are we going to order the books in this last section. And you'll notice if you ever pick up a Jewish Bible, 
it's basically our Old Testament, Christian Old Testament. Uh, but the but the books of that last section are in a di- are in a different place than in our Bible. But it's the same same book. So anyway, that that's a council. Now, as far as the New Testament councils, the Council of Laodicea in three sixty three listed twenty six books. Now there are twenty seven in you know modern traditional Christian Bibles now, twenty seven books. They listed uh, um, twenty six, and Revelation was not on the list. Partly. Because Revelation came in last, it came came in later, um, written maybe in the mid '90s, that sort of thing. For the Eastern churches, there's in 367 we have a list um, in in a letter from Athanasius of Alexandria, listing all 27 books. In the Western churches, the Synod of Hippo in 393. And also in the West, the Third Council of Carthage in 397. You notice those names, Hippo and Carthage? You know where those are, right? Those are in North Africa. Christ- Christendom uh, had extended and spread into, into, into North Africa. And so that the great St. Augustine, you know, was, mm-hmm. from, was the Bishop of Hippo in, in North Africa. Um, so, yes, councils did make the list. Um, they did make lists. And, and, um, and so in, in some ways, people could say, well, is it because of the councils that we believe these books are scriptural? Yeah, and and I think too it's the difference between were these books uh, – were they recognized by their function? They were already functioning as mm-hmm, scripture and mm-hmm. so they're, they show up in lists and writings and so forth or – was it this top-down authoritarian approach of we're going to tell you what is right. – you know, that's kind of right. the opposite view we're looking at here. So as we unpack that distinction, I know we'll, we'll talk about it as we go on. Um, so another question that comes to mind is was, was the Bible considered or were these writings, these books in the New Testament considered inspired because a council said that, that they were? Uh, yeah, you and know that's, what I mean by that? That's the question. Is would and I think most people when they hear just people who haven't studied this much, if they hear the question of of canonicity, um, maybe they learned the term, maybe they've read it in, online or whatever, they're thinking canonicity is about the council. You know, at what point did somebody declare an official body of the church or Judaism? declare that these books are part of the Bible. And after that point, then, okay, they're, they're the Bible. Yeah. Because they determine that, because they have some sort of authority. But actually, what we're going to find is the answer to that question, which came first, the canon or the council? We're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say the canon did, way before the council. But that's a, that's the question. Did people recognize the books as authority because of and after a council? Or did the council think they were authoritative Authoritative because people had already recognized the books as authoritative. So, how do we know? Yeah. <laughs> so where do we where where do we start? How do we get a definitive answer to that question? Yeah. Well, first is to talk about this term canon first and canonicity is um, as one one author says. Um, there's a difference between a core canon and a closed canon. When people the, – the description of canon that I just described related to the councils and because of the council's declaration is, is what I would be in – it's put in the category of closed canon. OK. It's closed because of a council. But is there a core canon that was recognized before that? Um, in other words, like a group of books that were – really none of them were disputed. Is that what you're talking yes, about? A, a, yeah. a core yeah, were they kind of were they recognized were they recognized early? Um, uh, let me give you an illustration of this that I read and I liked it and I I, I tweaked it a bit, but it's in um, I think Laird Harris's or Renee Pasha's book on the topic of canon. Um, picture a child gathering flowers in the garden with the owner of the garden walking next to him. So picture a child. So I, I, I'm from Wyoming and we would visit my grandparents' place in Buffalo, Wyoming, and they were excellent gardeners. And we would go out to the garden and in the morning usually and my grandpa would be walking with me 
And he would select the turnip or the carrots or whatever it was. Sometimes he'd let me pick some, but he'd do the selecting and I would gather. Well, now this illustration fits, but I think flowers are, are a better representation of this what's happened with the canon, I think, than just vegetables. But that's the idea, is that imagine a person like a kid walking out with his grandpa and, they, and, and we're gathering flowers. So he, he picks a blossom and hands it to me. I think, wow, that's a, that's a beautiful blossom. And that came from grandpa and he grew it and gave it to me to be a part of a bouquet. And he hands me another one. Oh, that's two. Now I got, boy, that's looking great. So flower by flower, the owner of the flowers, hands a flower to the child, one after the other, as they both slowly walk through the garden. The bouquet is admired even before it's complete, right? From the first blossoms to the last. When it is complete, someone describes the bouquet and lists the flowers in it. So what did you gather today? Oh, I gathered the, these. These are the flowers in the bouquet. So the list isn't the reason the flowers are in the bouquet. The flowers are in the bouquet. The flowers in the bouquet are the reason for the list. So what what I think happened and what many New Testament scholars think happened, and I'm not in the category of New Testament scholars. I'm just a interpreter, sort of a translator of those things. What they are saying is that it's like that, is that the book by book, people were, were recognized this is from God from the owner. And they knew that it was, that it had authority because of that. And book by book, these books were added until the bouquet was complete. And I think that's the order. So the lists, the list of the flowers in the bouquet don't, didn't put the flowers in the bouquet. The flowers were put in the bouquet before they were listed. That's and I think that's the order that happened. Got it. Okay, that, which that makes a lot of sense. And um, what what kind of years and centuries are we are we talking about here? When was this going on? What's the time frame? Yeah, good question. And I thought here we ought to we ought to just sort of summarize. You know, when we're talking about the Bible, what are we talking about? We're talking about um, the Jewish Bible, which I mentioned, is the same as our Old Testament. A lot of people don't know that. And also some people say, well, isn't the Old Testament – I'll ask many groups of Christians and people who studied and say, what's the old, what's the Jewish Bible called? And they'll say the Torah. And technically, no, that's not right. The Torah is, you know, the books of Moses, yeah, the yeah. first five books, the T in Tanakh. But the N stands for prophets and the K, the last – sound consonant in Tanakh is the the writings. So in our Old Testament, sort of set up like that. Our Old Testament, there are 17 historical books, including the Torah of Moses, and then five books of prophecy, which fall within that storyline of those 17 books from Genesis to um, Esther. Five books of poetry. And then five books of poetry. Sorry, what did I say? Prophecy. Oh, yeah. Five books of poetry. Thank you. Just testing you there, Blaine. I'm paying you, attention, and you, Don. And you passed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You weren't nodding or anything, but I just thought I'd test you. And then 17 books of prophecy. So 17, 5, 17. That's pretty easy to remember. Yep. So so the, the his, history line is there. And, and so the Bible is made up of a story with poetry and prophecy kind of plugged in, in in the times when they occurred, when they were written, when the prophet lived or when the poet wrote. So the story starts with Genesis um, and the writing of Genesis is by Moses in about 1450 BCE, I think. Others say 200 years later, 1250 BC. Uh, by the way, a recent discovery in an ancient inscription in, in Israel may help to confirm the early date. Um, and you can just look at that. Just Google new archaeological discovery, just write in cursings and blessings. And it's it's amazing. And and huh. one of the conclusions of the archaeologist that, that is writing about it is that this would this would lean toward the earlier date. So all that to say that the Bible is starting to be written around 1450. Okay, so that's when the Bible is written. So the first book of the Bible is 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 written in the first flower in the bouquet is is put in the in in the hand of the people of God 
in about 1450 and ends then with the writings of the prophet Malachi in about 435 BCE. So, so from a period of about 1450 to 435, about 1,000 years, 1,100 years or so, the, the Bible is, the Old Testament is being written. As far as the New Testament being written, it was written between about 45 and 95. So the flowers in that little New Testament bouquet, which is about a, a, a third of the size of the Old Testament bouquet <laughs> of books, is um, from 45 to 95, about 50 years. So the first books were the letter of James and the letter of Galatians, most people think. Galatians written by Paul, James written by the the brother of Jesus, half-brother technically, right? For for us who believe that that he had, they had a different father. <laughs> most New Testament scholars believe the last books of the New Testament were written by John, his gospel, his letters, and the book of Revelation. So those would be the ones in up to you know 95 or so. So we have we have a range from 1450 BC for the Old Testament to about 435 BCE and then we have the New Testament 45 to 95. So the million dollar question if we're going to be saying that the the books of particularly the New Testament were were recognized and used as scripture and authoritative prior to these lists that show up at, at councils and so forth. The, the question is, how were they received? How were these books utilized when they were first written and soon after? And what evidence can we see there of what people thought of them uh, from the beginning, from when they were written? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, what happened in the Old Testament is similar to what happened in the New Testament, appears, is that they were truly added book by book. And so these books were recognized by contemporaries as being authoritative as they appeared. So for the Old Testament, we have records of that in Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges. Just as a sample of that, in um, in Joshua's writings, um, in Judges, for instance, in Judges, it says, Obey the Lord's commands which, which, he, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. So and when we have many places like that, recognizing that the Books of Moses were authoritative and from God and should be obeyed. Um, King Hezekiah, he held fast. This is about 715 BCE. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. So so notice the, the these are the books that were written. It acknowledges the human author and the, the divine author at the same time. So those are just some samples, and you find that in Daniel, you find in Ezra and Nehemiah, and and then when you get to the New Testament era, you see the the, the same thing. Um, the, the passage that I, I love to bring out, and it's uh, and because it, it I don't know if it hits people the same way it hits you, Blaine, like it did me, but it, Acts two forty two is a description early on in the book of Acts of what normal Christians did in the church, right? What did churches do? And this passage is usually used. It goes like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You say, well, that's a great description of what a church does. But what I, I missed for years is this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You would think that the church would gather and devote themselves to the scriptures, Right? Mm-hmm. And Peter had just preached a sermon using as authoritative the Old Testament scriptures, really to give evidence that Messiah was to die and rise again. And and this is just you know fifty days after the events of the Passion of Christ and the Resurrection. So um, it says here they devoted themselves not to the scriptures, but to the apostles' teaching, um, which says already. They saw authority in the apostles' teaching. So we knew they saw authority in the Old Testament, just as all the prophets and all the writings of the Old Testament had said, well, yeah, what precedes is from God. There's a lot of thus says the Lord's, as you know, through all the prophets in the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. This is what the Lord says to you. And it was often you know, confirmed by or validated by miracles or signs or 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 prophecies that could be fulfilled in the, in the in the time of the hearing of the people. So, um, 
of the lives of the people that heard them. So um, same thing in the New Testament. We know that the, the new Jewish believers believed in the authority of the Old Testament, and now it's saying they're believing in the authority of the apostles. And so the apostles were teaching, you know, they weren't writing at the time, they were teaching. And as, as one author points out, um, as the church grew, a visit by a living apostle would became, become more and more seldom. Because there just aren't apostles to go around, and you and you miss that authoritative teaching until you get a letter. Oh, here's a letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, and they read that. Now Paul would have well, had authority as a living apostle, um, live. Our guest speaker today is Paul the apostle, <laughs> and oh, this is Paul the apostle. He's and he knows, kind of you know, almost dragged in to the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming as an enemy of Christ first. But then he recognizes that the authority, I got the gospel from God, not from not from man. And so they recognized it too. So it just makes sense that as soon as they something as the ink hit the page, that there would they wouldn't say, Well, this isn't authoritative. No, it's 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 authoritative and it's more secure because it's written down. We don't have to memorize it. We can we can reread it and copy it and make other copies of it. And so we have evidence of that. Even while it was being written, Paul, you know, Paul says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, this is First Thessalonians, a letter to the church at Thessalonica. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. That's pretty powerful. Um, it, to, the, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's pretty, that's either arrogant, talk about hubris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the questions that comes up if I uh, just see how you would answer this. But if if I was being real skeptical of all of this, I would say, Don, this is this is very convenient that the Bible has all of these statements we've just been talking in the old and new Ted. It's very convenient that it has all these thus says the Lord and it's you know, you gotta listen to it and commands of God and and so anybody I could write something that says the exact same thing. How do we know this really is true? That's, I know, I know. And that was the question from the very beginning when Moses was was kind of commissioned, talking about kicking and screaming into a role of being the mouthpiece of God. Moses takes the cake. Remember, Moses had like four different arguments why he shouldn't be the spokesman <laughs> of God. Remember that? I do remember that. Uh, you know, I'm, I can't speak. I, I never took speech class. I, I don't have a good voice. Um, and, 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 and also, how will, how will not, I don't worry about the Egyptians so much, but how will the people of God, when I go back to them and say, God spoke to me from a burning bush, and said, we're going to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. They're not going to believe me. And God said, yep, you got a point. And so I'm going to give you three signs. And he gave him three miracles that he did. So water turned to blood, snake turned to a staff, and back to a staff turned to a snake, back to a staff, because uh, he was a shepherd. He had a big stick. And the other one was a, a hand that was, you know, healthy hand, put it in your cloak, pull it out. Ooh, it's leprous. You put it back in, pull it out, and now it's clean. Now, he says, go show them that. So God expects, God doesn't expect us to be gullible. He, In fact, he wants us to test things, test the prophets, test the spirit of God, test the spirits to see if it's from God, et cetera. So, um, so the, the prophets of God, the apostles of Christ, again and again, are validated by signs and wonders. And by prophecies, things that are supernatural. If if how do we expect? Uh, how do how would God expect anybody to believe that it's a supernatural message? Just like you say, anybody can say that. Thus says thus says the Lord, and many people have. And so we need to test them. We need to be suspicious. We need to have evidence. And so to believe that there's a supernatural message a prophet of God or apostle of God, then it helps to see a supernatural sign that can't be explained naturalistically. 
And so the miracles that, for instance, Jesus did are duplicated um, nearly exactly. I haven't tallied them, but it's amazing. There are resurrections from the dead. There's healings of the blind, of the lame, of the deaf in the book of Acts by Peter, John, James, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and by Paul. And so so they were writing that, yeah, we're writing the word of God. And people didn't stand up and say, oh, yeah, who says? Because they saw they saw the miraculous. They had even pagans want to worship them as Greek gods because they saw the miracles. Acts 14 mm-hmm. in Lystra, man is healed, lame man is healed, and the people recognize it as a supernatural act. And so um, – so we have we have those kinds of things behind this. That's that's why these. It doesn't show that people the early Christians were gullible. No, it shows that they, like us, needed to have validation, needed to have proof, evidence that what they were saying was was based on some sort of authority. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and it, it's we've got a suite now we're developing of. Bible-related questions here on the podcast over five seasons. So a lot of these questions about the Bible really fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, right? So this question of what books should be in, this you can't totally isolate it from other topics we've looked at related to the Bible. So no. uh, I'd encourage you to go, go back and listen to some of the others uh, as you're considering this question, and it might uh, help put that puzzle together for you mentally. So um, – I want you to keep going, though, Don, because some of these other just quotations from the New Testament are are fascinating. Back to where we where we were. So, yeah. what what is the what do these books claim for themselves and about right. other books in mm-hmm. the New Testament? So, we're answering that question again. What what were how are these books received around the time they were first written? Not centuries later, mm-hmm. but that original audience, what were people saying? So uh, continue. There's a, there's a couple interesting ones here. Yeah. And especially this is in contrast to the idea of if canon authority comes by a council that comes in the fourth century, that's way different than if, if they're actually being recognized as they're being written. Mm-hmm. And an example of that, Second Second Peter, Peter says, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, which the untaught and unstable desort distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. This is pretty astounding that Peter, a follower of Christ, would say this about Paul's writings and calls them and includes them there in the bouquet of scriptures. Yeah. And so and when it says scriptures, this is this is the Old Testament bouquet as well. So we're adding flowers to what's been confirmed already by the prophets of God and known by the Jewish community of faith as being in the bouquet given by God. Um, Paul writes, he, he writes in 1 Timothy 5.18, he, he quotes two passages, one from Deuteronomy and another, you would have to look far and wide in the Old Testament to find it. <laughs> and you know where you find it? You find it in Luke. He says, the labor is worthy of his wages. He's quoting, he's quoting a passage from, from Luke. And so here, here, so we have Peter calling Paul's writing scripture, and we have Paul assuming that the writings of Luke are scripture. So it also shows that they knew what each other were. were there, there were exchanges. So the gospel writers, for instance, knew other gospel writers. They knew the writings. Uh, Paul knew the writings. So let me ask you a somewhat nuanced question because in the Timothy passage you just quoted, he mm-hmm. says, the scripture says, mm-hmm. and then quotes yes, this yes. passage. And that's yes. important mm-hmm. because uh, people, when they get into this question, they'll also argue uh, or they'll, they'll question, they'll have a question about the Bible. It quotes all kinds of secular books and sources. Right. So why aren't those considered scripture? Right. Uh, yeah. Paul's quoting Luke here. It's considered scripture, quote unquote. Uh, or we we think it was not quote unquote, but that's just that's what a, a critical argument would be. But uh, the Bible quotes all kinds of uh, yep. other sources, and I think that's it's an interesting part of the New Testament. But what would you say to that if the Bible quotes something? Yeah. Why isn't that scripture? Well, well, first of all, yeah, to quote something doesn't give it, it doesn't necessarily assume that it's authoritative. Uh, when um, in Titus, Paul says, you know, as everybody knows, as 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 you hear. 
all Cretans are liars <laughs> because that's just that's, – that's like probably on a bumper sticker by people that hate Cretans. I don't know. But that's a, that's a, known, that's a known phrase. Um, in Acts 17, Paul quotes, quotes a Greek poet that people of Athens are familiar with. But he quotes it because they're familiar. It's like somebody would quote C.S. Lewis today. Yeah. Or or quote um, you know somebody like know, William Buckley or or um, Tim Keller or um, a newscaster of you know somebody famous somebody says this it doesn't mean that it's God's word it just means that it's a it's a place of reference that's common to the ear and and we have uh, we have places like that um, I'm trying to think there's a there's another one that came to mind that, that I I've, I slipped my mind but. Um, but yes, yeah, so but this one, as you point out, this says, for the scripture says. So this isn't just a quote. Uh, this is a citation of authority. Yeah. And the fact that there's two scriptures quoted, Deuteronomy, which is one of the three most quoted books of the Old Testament in the New Testament as authoritative. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy many times as authoritative. And assumed that though as written by Moses, it was given by God to Moses. So it's God's word and not a jot or tittle. Not a, the littlest stroke will pass away until all is fulfilled, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so this is different. He's calling it, he's calling it scripture here. And um, so we have, we, have the, we have evidence that the, that, we, that the books of the Bible written in the New Testament, as they were written, were were deemed authoritative. And it makes sense if from the very beginning of the church, uh, in fact, the birth of the church, as many of, of, of us believe at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. It makes sense then that when the apostles' writing happens, that they would deem those authoritative too. And then as you push past the New Testament, Clement of Rome quotes by name 1 Corinthians and refers to other New Testament books. Barnabas, there's a book called Barnabas, called sometimes called Pseudo-Barnabas, which is somewhere around 65 or 70. Do you remember? Something like that. I don't that. remember. Yeah. He quotes Matthew 22, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. In 107 or one, somewhere around 110-ish, uh, Ignatius, he recognized the authority of the apostles. Polycarp, Calls the in one fifteen calls the apostolic writings scripture and cites Ephesians four twenty six and Psalm four four verse five as scripture. So here's another evidence that early on and Polycarp was it was thought to be um, by historians of of that era like Eusebius who looks back and Papias write. Um, I'm not sure if Papias writes about Polycarp, but Eusebius does that. The Polycarp was a was a disciple of John and Polycarp says that too. So he was a disciple of the Apostle John, which makes sense. If John was living into the 90s mm-hmm. and Polycarp is writing this in 115 and he's quoting, he's quoting the New Testament and uh, Psalms as both scripture. Papias, around 140, he writes about the apostles Matthew and Mark by name. He writes that Mark, the evangelist who had never heard Christ, carefully gave an account of everything he remembered from the preaching of Peter he mentions Matthew's Gospel too, written from a Hebrew perspective. So we have early on the early, what did the early Christians think about the New Testament? They weren't walking around saying, "Wow, there, we really don't have any word of God now. We don't. Where is the authority of God?" It wasn't like we. Well, we need to put together a council, the people that really know. Let's put the PhDs together. And they'll decide for us what's authoritative. No, they were already being recognized. They were already being seen as flowers in the bouquet. And they're recognized recognized early. And if the Council of Nicaea is 325, and again, in no way did Council of Nicaea determine the books of the Bible or even list the books of the Bible, um, we're talking hundreds of years, 200 years at least before these these the core canon is being recognized. So again, this core canon is what I'm talking about, is yeah. a recognition by the people of God that this, these these books belong. And what's fascinating to me about this whole discussion is honestly the, the other viewpoint that there was just a council 
what it, whatever one you want to pick. <laughs> but but, uh, but there was a time when uh, all the PhDs got together and go, bam, here it is. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, these are the books in the Bible. That's so much cleaner. I mean, it, it's so much cleaner mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than what we're proposing here actually happened, which is a little messy and mm-hmm. kind of chaotic. And we don't know all of the details. Um, even when you talk about this, the idea of the core canon, you know, mm-hmm. there there was a group of books that were really never challenged as mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. being scripture. But there's a handful that are in our 27 of the New Testament that that were recognized later. I mean, that that really right. went through a a longer process of of being accepted. Um, right. And so it's not this neat, clean, tidy thing like the other story is. Yeah. Uh, it, it, on that one sense, yeah, it's, it, you're right. It, it'd be cleaner if we had an authoritative body just declare it. But that's not, that's not what happened. It would have been clean even if it had happened in, say, 100. Mm-hmm. Okay, the canon's closed. Here's the list of books. But the upside of that is we don't have a human committee deciding something like this because humans have political biases. No. Are you serious? I, I, I don't, and I, I don't think you do either, but, but humans have biases, and, and we have favorites, and we have political leanings, and we have uh, gaps in our knowledge and, and understanding, and I'm glad that it wasn't put together by a human committee. The upside of this is that these these came came from a, an authority above, not from an authority below, and 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 what happened over space of time, both in the East and the West, in all the main branches of Christianity. So when we're talking about main branches of Christianity, Western Christianity, the Latin speaking mm-hmm. Roman Catholic Church. So fast forward centuries, we have a Roman Catholic Church and we have the Protestant Church, and which came out from the West. Then in the East, um, the Church based in Constantinople and and in the East Byzantium, the Greek speaking Christian world, Christendom, um, they all agree on this list of twenty seven books. Now it was the Council of Trent in the after the Protestant Reformation in the sixteenth century that the Catholic Church officially added some books that they had been using because they were they were used they were part of the Latin Bible that that the scholar Jerome had you know uh, trans translated and so um, but everyone agrees on the New Testament books the twenty seven and the Old Testament books the thirty nine. Um, and the fact that all of them agree about that, why do they agree about it? They agree because they see things like apostolic authority. It's from a prophet of God. They see that it has the power of God. It sees that many times it, it, they were the authority, um, the alleged authority, the apostle, for instance, was validated by the miracles of God. And there were contemporaries to those events that lived on into the, the second century that had seen those things, that were eyewitnesses, many of them were dying out, but now they had the letters and the stories and the gospels to, um, in, in black and white, you can read about these, these miracles and signs that were done, et cetera. So there was this gradual acceptance of the authority of God. So it, it really, they came to believe that, that each flower was indeed given by God. And, and, after uh, after the fourth century, there were no New Testament books that were uh, were even um, presented as as possible candidates to add to the canon. So the closing of the canon happened partly because of the apostolic authority that they assumed necessary for the New Testament canon. If the when the apostles were dead, then there weren't apostles to teach and write, mm-hmm. and because the message is clear and it's complete. We have a savior and the savior says, uh, spread the word of the gospel to all nations until I come. And in, in Jude says it's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's why um, 
Orthodox Christianity believes that the canon was was closed at that point. Yeah, and I I, I would encourage everybody listening to this th- that this is the type of question that that you might answer or you might you might get a better answer for personally when you've really made a decision about what you think about Jesus. Um, this is a great question to look at beforehand, and maybe there's things like Da Vinci Code that make you question the Bible, and you want to you listen to this, you want to just get a rough a rough answer. But I want to frame it in a in a different way. I, I think it's analogous to the way that we talk about miracles, Don. So when we get the question about are miracles possible? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really you've got to answer a different question first, which is, is is there a God? Right. Because if there's a God, well, then now we could investigate. Now, it's, it's at least possible mm-hmm. that miracles could occur, but if there is no God, then, then of course, it's, no miracle. It doesn't matter what right. the evidence is. Right. It wasn't a miracle. And yep. so I, I say it's analogous because I think that at some point everybody has to trust somebody uh, with regard to this this question. Uh, because it is a little, it's kind of it's hairy and messy a little. Because we're, what we're saying is that there's a there's an invisible, transcendent, eternal Creator God who communicated in a book. And yes, and we're saying that that God, uh, part of Christian theology, that that God in, indwells and empowers those who believe. And what we're saying is that it's those people that God is real. The Spirit of God is real, and God is is empowering and indwelling His people. And those people recognize mm-hmm. a a God quality to these particular books. I can't prove that to you uh, in the in the hard science kind of way. That's a. But if you think that the rest of the story is true, then trusting those original. People, in some sense, that God was working through those people mm-hmm. in some way, um, isn't as outlandish. Saying, but you've got to build an intellectual foundation to get exactly. There. If I could summarize the steps that get us there, it would be starting where you said, "How do we? Is, is, does God exist? If God exists through argumentation like, um, well, the universe had a beginning, Big Bang thought, cosmology, etc., or um, design uh, aspects, information aspects, and DNA, et cetera. But that's not the topic for this podcast, of course. But that's where one would have to start with that, is how do we know there's a God? And then how do we know there's a personal God, a God that could communicate or want to communicate or would have a will to communicate? And and for me, there are lines of reasoning to believe that partly because we're personal, it takes one to make one. Um, we we have aspects of personality. It, it it makes sense that that our creator would be more complex, not less complex than we are. Uh, is it easier to think that a man could make a computer, or a computer make a man, sort of thing? So, if God is personal, next question: Would could God communicate if this God wanted to? Well, yeah, could this God communicate? And that brings us to where we are today. Is how would we know? Um, and and the story of the Bible is is the story of of the claim that God came and spoke. God appeared to me in a burning bush and said this. Oh yeah, how do you know that? And thus the story begins with validating signs and wonders as it goes. The people of God are not dumb. They're 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 smart enough to to know that they should test every sales claim. And so they need to test it and they accepted it. And and then how do we know that the people of God really are onto something that changes human history in the big scale has everything to do with the Messiah Jesus. If Messiah Jesus, who's predicted in these Old Testament books, has truly come, how would we know it? And he not only lives a kind of life that's admirable by all kinds of worldviews, you know, representatives of different traditions, 
But he also claims to be divine and claims that after he dies, he's going to rise from the dead. And then his tomb is found empty and his followers who are skeptical of the whole idea of resurrection um, live to their graves, teach, as far as we know, teaching that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world, thus was the Lord, and rose from the dead and could give us that life. And and the early Christians went through that kind of change that that was predicted, um, that if you put faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will indwell you, and you will be transformed gradually, day by day, moment by moment, as you stay close to him. And that that pe- those people called the church recognized the the authority in the story as historically valid and the story as transformationally valid because they experienced it in their, in their own life. And they're they're the ones that that saw the authority of scripture. They recognized that. Um so I don't know if that helps, but in my mind, I'm just kind of going through in my mind where how we can't just rest believe that the, that the scriptures are authoritative because they say so or recognize so, but because it, that assumes a lot that there's a God, a God who would reveal Himself, a God who could reveal Himself, a God that's personal that has us um, has, has a desire to have a relationship, etc., and has indeed written a book. Yeah, it's part of that larger jigsaw puzzle we were yeah. talking about. There's yeah. there's other questions and beliefs and presuppositions that all come together when you're looking at this question. And, and it's like that for most of the questions that we deal with. Uh, they're not completely isolated. So um, can't you can't get out of here without, without me asking you this question. And you can give me the, the summary answer. But you mentioned earlier that Roman Catholics, uh, Eastern Orthodox, have – Additional books in their Bibles that that Protestants and other uh, uh, branches of Christianity do not. And why is that? And mm-hmm. why would we say that that those books should not be included? Yeah, um, we as Christians would call them the apocryphal books of the Old Testament. Within the Roman Catholic Church, they would not like that term so much. It would be the deuterocanonical books. Deutero means second. So it's kind of the second canon. So there's the first canon and there's the second canon, which would, you know, consist of, uh, you know, books like First and Second Esdras, as Esdras, Tobit, Judith. And for those of you who are raised in the Roman Catholic Church, you recognize some of these books, the books of Maccabees, for instance. Now, these books are written between the Old and New Testament periods. So remember, the Old Testament period ends at 435 BCE or so with Malachi and then starts up with, you know, the New Testament era and the writings begin about the 40s or so, you know, CE. So um, what happened in between? If you've ever heard of Hanukkah and who hasn't, that story is not in the Old Testament Jewish Bible. It's, it's in an inter, intertestamental history of what happened with the Jews um, when they were fighting the, the Syrian um, overlords, etc., and saw this miracle occur regarding, you know, temple oil. And so there's history. The books of Maccabees are well worth reading as a history of what happened. Where did the Pharisees and Sadducees come from? Um, who was ruling? Uh, what Jews were ruling during that period? And um, what was it like in between 400 BC and, you know, the New Testament? And so those books were recognized as valuable by the Jews, but never authoritative. So one of the reasons that, for instance, the side that says they're not of the same A-list category as the rest of the books of the Bible, it would be that the community of faith, the Jews, never saw them as such. They saw them as valuable, but they didn't see them as authoritative as Scripture. Um, Josephus writes, um, nothing can be better – now, he's, he writes in about 100 AD. Nothing can be better attested than the writings authorized among us. In fact, they could not be subject to any discord. He goes on and says, um, for we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us disagreeing from and contradicting one another, but only 22 books. Those 22 books, by the way, are the same 39 books that the Christian Bible has. They just group them differently, but they're the same same books of the Bible. So 
and we don't see any, even in rabbinic literature, like the rabbis who, like in the Babylonian Talmud, for instance, who wrote commentaries on the scriptures and on living a, a Jewish life, following the laws, etc. Um, how do you follow the Sabbath and all this stuff? Um, they don't consider the apocryphal books, the deuterocanonical books, as authoritative either. And that's a big reason, personally, why I think um, that's a tough one to get over. If the if the people who in whose culture these books appeared don't see them as authoritative, then then why should we? And also, the books themselves don't claim to be authoritative. They don't have the "thus says the Lord," for instance, and they're not quoted. They're, we have phrases that are similar that some people say, no, these are quotations in the New Testament of the apocryphal books, but never a whole sentence that I saw. It's phrases, it's, it's idioms that are used and, and that are common in that culture, but which you would expect. But you don't see quotations of the – so there's of the whatever, almost 300 quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are zero quotations like those. Mm. And none of those quotations, like many of those quotations of the Old Testament would be resting on the authority of those, you know, as God said through Moses. Yeah, or the prophet says, or or there's some introductory formula. said, yes, exactly. But you don't see that about the Apocrypha. Yeah, interesting. So it was, they were translated in in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. They were translated into Latin by Jerome. And so they became, and they became kind of necessary as the as the institutional Roman Catholic Church grew through the centuries for for some of the doctrines. And so after the Protestant Reformation, challenged the the, the authority of the Pope and of the uh, traditions of the Catholic Church, and moved only to Scripture, sola scriptura. The Catholic Church responded with the Counter Reformation and included. Included in that Counter Reformation Council called the Council of Trent, which was almost twenty years long, fifteen forty something, fifteen forty three to something, fifteen forty five to fifteen sixty three, I think. I think Sounds that's good. Right. Forty five to sixty three, because <laughs> it's almost twenty years. Forty five sixty three, is that right? Yes. Um, one of the things they, the thing they do is they canonize these deuterocanonical books. And make it official. So they list them then, 16 centuries later, as uh, as part of the authority of Scripture. But you know, for those reasons, I think that you know Protestants don't accept it. Greek Orthodox Church does, uh, but the Protestant Church does not. And it's not that they're not valuable, but they're just not seen as authoritative. So you know, make up your own mind out there. You know, do some study. But to know about that, people say, well, why is the Catholic Bible thicker? <laughs> just thicker paper. No. <laughs> it has these these intertestamental books. Yeah. That's a great summary, uh, Don. Thank you very much. And so let's uh let's land the plane here. We've had a great discussion. This is this is uh this is just a really interesting topic. So um how do we how do we wrap this up? We're gonna summarize our discussion, tie a nice little bow on your bouquet there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of flowers. Um so I'd summarize, yeah, with the bouquet in mind, it I think the Bible grew blossom by blossom as people recognize the book's divine authorship. Um, And I would, you know, Bruce Metzger has one of the best uh, ways of summarizing this topic. He says there's a distinction between people determining the canon and people recognizing the canon. And what what I've been saying is that people didn't determine the books of the Bible and what went in there and what didn't. They recognized what the owner, God, had deemed authoritative. They recognized it. So the, so he says the canon, Metzger says, and by the way, he was professor of New Testament studies and expert in textual criticism and, and, uh, and the New Testament studies and history at, at Princeton Seminary. Uh, the canon is not an authoritative list of books. Rather, it is a list of authoritative books. And I think that's a good summary. So, you know, what difference does that make? Um, just just back up and think about it. Okay, we have a book written by God? Really? A book that is written by God? That has authority? The authority of God? You know, what if that's true? Could God do that if he wanted to? Communicate with humanity in writing? Well, yeah. If he, if he can throw the universe into place, he can, he can do this. 
question is, has he done it? Well, how else, another question, how else would we explain where it came from? Could the notion of one God, creator of all nature and distinct from nature, with an ethical system honoring every human being, arise from the soil of ancient paganism, which doesn't value the individual, doesn't have just one God, doesn't have a consistent faithful God, but fickle, um, finite gods who can betray you at the drop of a hat. They form alliances, etc. You have to almost uh, trick them um, into, into helping you. Mm. The God of the Bible isn't like that. So there's this unique, common through line about this particular kind of God and ethical system valuing each individual person, slave or free, young or old, um, healthy or not, um, as valuable. And, and what if the reason for this unique and unified message throughout the Bible that the Creator God loves you and came to rescue you because you are valuable, what if the reason for that message is that it is from God and that it is therefore true? So that's why it makes a big difference to me. And I would encourage anybody who's who's listening, there's there's really no substitute to reading the Bible. We can talk about how it's special. You can hear some of the arguments and the reasonings here that we've talked about. Maybe be convinced one way or the other, uh, but there's no substitute for going to the source. Uh, read. Go read it. Pick it up. It's different than anything else you'll read. I think you'll you'll recognize that. So, Don, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. This was a great discussion. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, and I hope this was helpful for, for listeners. And I, too, encourage you to see the Bible as the greatest library in the world. And you don't have to start at the beginning. Go start with a gospel, for instance. Start with Mark or Luke or something. Um, start wherever you like. Go to the Proverbs. Go to Psalms. It's a library. Go into a library and browse and uh, know it for yourself. Great advice. And I want to thank everybody. Thank all of you for listening to The Search Podcast. If you enjoy this, please go give us a rating or a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.